Welcome to Strange Talk. Hey, strangers! Welcome, listeners! Welcome uh, to another this week in crime. And first, we're gonna get into uh, <laughs> gonna get into it a little bit. So I ended up just fucking getting HBO the add-on because I. I subscribe to who live TV, and with that, you can subscribe to premium channels. You can subscribe to Showtime, Stars, Cinemax, I believe, I think, and HBO. Those are the premium channels they have. I have all of them except for Cinemax and uh, HBO. But I recently got HBO because I wanted to see the fucking documentary um, Finding Never uh, Finding Neverland. <laughs> That's the wrong movie. <laughs> Leaving Neverland, um, and that is obviously the one about Michael Jackson and the two people who came forth in the documentary uh alleging that michael jackson sexually molested them but before i happened to watch that documentary i saw it because i had to see it but i saw won't you be my neighbor which is the documentary about fred rogers mr rogers neighborhood and i have to say my guy um it really sucks that we lost him because he is the only thing that is still fucking pure. I am glad that years after he's gone, he died back in 2003. So I'm glad that years after he has gone and he has passed, he will finally um, he's, he's finally like nothing has come out that like, oh, he fucking diddled me or he was a fucking cocaine addict or something. He was just a pure of heart guy that he's the only thing good in this world that's filled with nothing but fucking evil <laughs> but that documentary was really good um and it was it, it, obviously it's fucking sad like towards the end it's really sad like after he passed and stuff like if you haven't seen it uh go ahead and skip over this because i i, I guess if you're gonna spoil it but yeah he fucking died he died back in 2003 but I guess at his funeral after he died, I want to say it was Westboro Baptist Church, those fucking idiots, they went and protested his funeral. They said that he was going to burn in hell and stuff, and that's really fucking sad because he was such such a nice man. And uh, there's a, I've already knew about this prior to the documentary being made, but they do touch on that subject, so if you don't know, you're actually going to be learning about this. But Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, um... When the PBS was made, it's public broadcasting, so they're funded by through ways of donation, and some of them use commercials. They're not really big name commercials, but Fred Rogers refused to have any commercials that associated with selling kids toys because he felt like if it's not for educational purposes, there's no sense in the cho- like the child playing with it or being being with it. Now they didn't in the documentary though. They don't really go too much in his like private life so much. With this, they touch on it just fairly a little bit. The children didn't really have anything bad particularly to say about their father but the only thing they touched on was that whenever he was like upset or angry he would always you knew he was that his sons would say you knew he was angry if he did the voice of uh daniel the the tiger puppet if i'm if you're not familiar with mr rogers neighborhood then um he had various puppets on there on his show um and he would do the voices for them and I guess whenever he was mad or upset, 
he would always do the voice of Daniel the tiger because he was just pissed off. And that's how they knew that their father was pissed off because he was never really one to show his emotions. And um, other than that, they didn't really go too much into his private life. Uh, they talked about various things about their private life, but not they weren't very open about it unless the documentary, the people creating the documentary were told by the family, like, hey, cut this out or don't put this, you know. But... <clears throat> Going back to uh, Fred Rogers, during PBS, PBS there was a, a senator, I forgot from what state, but he was basically going to cut the funding for PBS and it would effectively just obs- make like PBS obsolete. There wouldn't be any more PBS. And they were asking for $20 million to be given to them so that way they can continue to fund their programs that they have, which included um, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And the senator was basically already had his decision made. He was, he was not going to do it, but he had to be there for the test. He had to be there for the test for the trial so that we can hear the testimony of all the other various um, uh, shows that were on PBS. And he was basically just humoring them at that point, but it wasn't until Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers came up and spoke to him and he was going to read him his speech. And he said, I, I'm not going to read my speech because you've been hearing everybody else and I feel at this point, you don't really care too much to hear it. It's only 10 minutes. So I hope and I trust that you'll at least read it when I give it to you. Um, and so the senator guy said, well, do you want to read it? And he was like, no, it's fine. I'm just going to tell you this. And he just goes on to say like a really heartfelt like message about what it is that he does on his program and what he feels that in today's world, because at this time there's nothing but cartoons for children and just slapstick comedy. And he felt like that's not really, it's not something that should be molding our children, even though that's all there is nowadays. There's really nothing like Mr. Rogers or anything. And he was, he was like, you can't get rid of PBS because if you do, then, you know, who's going to teach our children. And if it wasn't for Fred Rogers saying his genuine heartfelt speech, the Senator, was somehow touched by it. And he said, you know what? You just won your $20 million. And because of Fred Rogers alone, he was able to fund PBS for (laughs) as long as he was able to do. And it was just a really good documentary. So I recommend if you have HBO, if you subscribe to Hulu through H for like HBO, I I recommend giving it a watch. It's actually really good. and And it's really sad because of the fact that we don't have Mr. Rogers anymore because he was the only thing fucking pure in this world filled with evil. Now on to leaving Neverland. I haven't finished the second part. I finished the first part of the documentary, but what is in there makes you cuz again, it, it's not not that it's not how can I say this without sounding like a fucking dick? Um it's not that it's not cuz it it probably happened but we don't know. But a lot of what goes into the details makes you really question like, holy shit, it does make sense. Some of the shit that they talk about doesn't add up, but it makes sense that it could be possible that it happened. Well, in the documentary, it follows two people. Um, so they met Michael Jackson, obviously, when they're very young. One was, I was, I think, maybe five years old. His name is Wade. And the other one is Jimmy. And I think he was like a little older. He was like, maybe like, I want to say seven when he first met Michael Jackson and Wade met Michael Jackson because he was from Australia and he emulated Michael Jackson. He was like, he loved Michael Jackson. Um, The first time he saw Michael Jackson 
was watching the making of video that his mom happened to rent of the thriller video. And that's how he was introduced to Michael Jackson. And he said that ever since he saw that video, he fell in love with Michael Jackson and wanted to be like Michael Jackson. So he studied all his dance moves at the age of five, grant you. Okay. And he happened to go to a contest that was going on where you could be possibly win tickets to a Michael Jackson concert show that was happening in Australia. And it was a dance contest. So he went to that contest and he danced like Michael Jackson, I believe he danced um, either Billie Jean or Bad, because I think at the time the Bad record came out, and um, so he he didn't. I think he won, and so he was able to go to the concert and whatever. And eventually, he got to meet Michael Jackson. That's how we first met Michael Jackson. And it's Michael Jackson saw his dancing, and Michael Jackson told his mother that he would take him, Wade, and and basically put him under his wing to maybe launch a career for him in dancing, which Michael Jackson did. You learn this throughout the first part of the documentary, because I believe it's a two-parter. And Jimmy met Michael Jackson when he did a commercial with him. It was a Pepsi commercial. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the commercial, um, if you were from around that time when Michael Jackson was really big in the 90s and you're old enough to remember. there The commercial was when um, this kid goes, he's supposed to go get Michael Jackson, and Tom, Hey, your, your show's about to start. And he walks into Michael Jackson's dressing room. And in the commercial, you see all the coats that Michael Jackson used to wear, like all the glitter, sparkly fucking jackets and stuff. And he sees the glasses that Michael Jackson wear, the sunglasses, he puts them on, he dances like him. And then Michael Jackson pops into the room <laughs> and it isn't very like if you think about it now especially with the allegations that are are, are being brought against michael jackson <laughs> like the commercials like he michael jackson walks into the doorway and you see him he stares at the little kid and they're kind of have a brief moment where they stare at each other and he's like hey you're pretty good and, and then the kid starts laughing like ah. and that's jimmy and that's where he first met michael jackson was doing that commercial and ever since then they were together the, the documentary doesn't really talk about when these kids because the kids eventually meet each other because both wade and jimmy michael jackson invites them to neverland ranch to stay with them along with their families and throughout all this time the parents kind of give their explanation as why they thought it was okay well they didn't none of them say that they thought it was okay they all thought it was a little weird but then they all thought about the fact that michael jackson didn't really have a childhood and that because he lost his childhood innocence i guess because he lost his childhood and he missed out on it that's what they thought like okay maybe that's why he likes to be around the kids is because he likes to, to pretend like he's a kid because he missed out on that and I think personally, it's because Michael Jackson had a fucking shit ton of money and he was able to provide a life for them that they would probably never have in their lives at all. Because Michael Jackson would come to uh, Wade's um, house in um, and Jimmy's parents' house. Actually, they, he would go to Jimmy's house, um, parents' house more because of the fact that they lived in um, California, whereas Wade lived in Australia. And... But Michael Jackson would contact Wade every day. He he even says that in the documentary that he would constantly send him faxes. Um, Michael Jackson's nickname for Wade was Little One. And he would sing to him over the phone a lullaby like Little One, where is, where is my little one? Something along the lines like that. But he sings it in the documentary. And it's crazy because they don't really get into it right away when the 
sexual molestations happened, uh, they kind of slowly get into it. They more they more get into like when they started visiting, what they would do, how Michael Jackson would take them to Disneyland. They start dropping little things here and there. Like one of the first things they said they thought was really different and kind of weird, but they just accepted it because they felt like that's just how Michael Jackson was. Is when when Michael Jackson took Wade and Jimmy to Disneyland. Uh, Michael Jackson used to like to hold their hands and when he would hold their hands he would with like his middle finger would rub the inside of their palm and that was like a signal to say I love you without actually saying words and they all talked about how Michael Jackson would constantly tell him like don't like if anybody caught us we would we I would go to jail for the rest of my life. And so would you. And I guess he made that pretty adamant to them. Like hey don't fucking say anything. Alright bitch don't fucking say anything. Because if I get fucking caught. You're going down with me. So they, they would do that type of thing. But so again if you don't want to hear. What's going on in this documentary. Because you want to see for yourself. Go ahead and skip over. I would say at least the next 10 minutes. Because I'm still going to be talking about it. But the thing that's so crazy about it. Is again. Um, Michael Jackson would would want them to stay the night and the parents would be on Neverland Ranch with them. They would stay the night too because they talked about how huge Neverland Ranch is. And if you've never seen Neverland Ranch, it's basically he Michael Jackson tried to make Neverland Ranch his own Disneyland because he loved Disneyland because it was like his childlike innocence. And you get that nostalgic feeling of being a kid when you do visit fucking Disneyland. And I'm I'm a person who used to go to Disneyland like a lot. I used to love going to Disneyland a lot because I would get drunk and ride the rides there and I would get high before I would go into Disneyland and I fucking loved it. It was fun, especially when you're really fucking high. It's really fun to just go. And I know it's for kids and everything, but it's really fucking fun. But um, he tried to make Neverland Ranches on Disneyland. So there was like rides there. And at the time when they were kids, there weren't really that many rides. There was like maybe the Ferris wheel and the merry-go-round. But now there's there was, well, not anymore because it's abandoned now, but there was um, a roller coaster. and they would have their birthday parties there. They, they were always there at Neverland Ranch. And it was at one point when the, the sexual molestations, I believe, first started was uh, Wade said that uh, Michael Jackson invited them to Neverland Ranch and they were there. And Michael Jackson came up with the idea. Michael came up with the idea of like, why don't we send the family to Grand Canyon? And so they're like, oh, yeah, let's go to Grand Canyon. And he's like, yeah, you guys can take uh, my RV. <laughs> like, you know, and then. And then Michael told the mother, Wade's mother, I forgot her name, but they told Wade's mother like, hey, well, why don't you have Wade stay here with me and I can help and we can practice his dance routines. I can help him. I can introduce him to some some people that can maybe help him get into some music videos. And the mom said at first she was pretty hesitant. She told Michael, no, because that's my son. He should be with us at the Grand Canyon too. But Michael was telling her like, no, no, you you should be, you should think about your son's career there's i can i'm michael jackson i can make your son a star and so the mom said you know what okay maybe he's right he he's famous he's a fucking famous pop singer you know and so michael jackson gave him the rv and they left and that's when the sexual molestation actually started um he said wade Wade said what he would have him do is um he talked about how like michael loved wade and how um, he didn't really touch Wade too much. What he would do is he would make Wade turn around and bend over and spread his butt <laughs> apart 
so he could see his asshole. And Michael would then start fucking jacking off. And he says the reason why he remembers it so clearly is because of the fact that in the room that they were staying in, uh, Michael had a cutout of Peter Pan from Disney's Peter Pan, a cardboard box cutout of Peter Pan. And it was facing Wade as he was turning around, spreading his fucking butt cheeks apart. And then he says the only two things he remembers seeing was either Peter Pan or if he looked back, he would see Michael Jackson jerking himself off to his fucking butthole. And um, another thing I guess Michael supposedly liked doing was that um, he would like for Wade to rub his nipples. <laughs> and it, they get really fucking detailed and graphic in the documentary. So if you're uncomfortable with that type of stuff, um, I'm sorry. But uh, this is what they say in the documentary. And that I guess when he would rub Michael's nipples, he would go like, he, he, <laughs> like he would do that, which is fucking creepy, dude. And it sucks because um, as when I was younger, I, I obviously did like Michael Jackson. I didn't like him like that much because I didn't like his record bad. I liked more th- his thriller and off the wall stuff. That was more into that stuff. I wasn't into like his newer stuff. Um, like maybe the late eighties was when I stopped liking Michael Jackson, but, um, but it's, 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 it's kind of scary to know that that's what happened because they, they even go into depth about when the allegations first started coming up, when uh, another kid came forth in the beginning saying that he was being sexually molested by Michael Jackson. And they said they, Obviously, because they were sexually molested by Michael Jackson, both Wade and Jimmy, but they, for some reason, didn't really want to say anything about it. And that was because Michael Jackson fucking drove it home into their brains. Like, don't fucking say anything. He, and I guess he kind of manipulated them and they all they, But they all went on to say that they all kind of felt like they were in love with Michael Jackson. Like, I'm talking about romantically in love, which would make sense, obviously, because they're being manipulated. But they felt very jealous when Macaulay Culkin started coming around because Macaulay Culkin was, like, the number one kid that Wade and Jimmy used to be. And so it gets more into that. So I don't, I'm not going to say everything because I want you, if you're interested and to hear more, I want you guys to go and check out uh, Leaving Neverland that's available on HBO. I'm pretty sure if you have um, Cody... If you're not aware of what Cody is, Cody is basically like LimeWire, but it's not a torrent. What it is, is you're basically seeing and viewing um, these movies or TV shows for free through the internet. Um, so just look up and, and Google fucking YouTube it or something, Cody, so you can learn how to install it on your computer, on your phone, or on your Fire Stick. You'll be able to watch it that way. Um, but I'm pretty sure you can, if you just scour the internet, I'm pretty sure you'll be able to find some way of viewing it. Um, so that's it for... Uh, won't you be my neighbor? Which is really fucking sad because he's so pure and so good. We lost him. So now we're going to move on to this week in crime. So let's get into the first article. This one's going to be a short one. And I want to give a big thank you to at Rocky the Collector because he's the one that really saves my ass from doing the research and trying to get all the articles for you. And I know most of you probably think you lazy fuck, but it's okay because he's fucking awesome. And, you know, I don't want to speak or get it too ahead of myself, but uh, he may be a guest speaker one day um, on the show. Uh, so it'd be pretty fun to do an episode with him. But let's start off nonetheless. I think I 
fucking taking up most of your time. So police in New Jersey say that they had to put down a bull after it attacked its owner. Around 3 p.m. Friday, Sparta police received multiple reports of a cow approaching cars on House's Corner Road. While officers were en route, the animal's owner called to say it was in fact a bull that had been acting highly aggressive lately. Probably has mad cow disease. <laughs> when the owner arrived on scene, the bull stated the, to mount her car. When she got out to coax it through a gate, the animal turned on her and threw her to the ground. Police said the owner managed to break free and officers shot the bull. The owner suffered cuts and bruises and needed stitches on her head. Wow. <laughs> so it probably tried to, it was probably just fucking pissed because it wanted some fucking cow. Uh, it wanted to have sex, man. It probably was just like, I'm tired of being alone. I need it. And it was just like, it's, I'm, I'm going to die trying to get it. So let's get to the next, the next article. <laughs> All right. So this article is, um, a forensic, al- uh, uh, forensic analyst by scientists in the UK may have unmasked Jack the Ripper more than a century after the murderer's brutal killing spree sent shockwaves through Victorian London. Research by Dr. Jari Lolihan, senior lecturer in Mike. Molecular Biology at Liverpool, John Moores University, and Dr. David Miller, reader in Molecular Andrology Andrology at the University of Leeds, claims to shed new light on the notorious serial killer. In an abstract of their research published in the Journal of Forensic Sciences, uh, Lauren Hall and Miller explained they used what is, to their knowledge, the only remaining physical evidence linked to the murders recovered from one of the Ripper's famous victims at the scene of her death. The study, however, has sparked controversy with a number of critics questioning the research. Jack the Ripper is thought to have claimed the lives of at least five women in the Whitechapel area of London between August and November of 1888. However, the identity of the notorious murderer remains shrouded in mystery. Science reports that the scientists analyzed a bloodstained shawl from Catherine Eddowes, the fourth of the so-called canonical five Jack the Ripper victims. Eddowes was killed on September 30th, 1888, and her badly mutilated body was found on Whitechapel's Mitor Square, or Mitre Square. The scientists' genetic testing linked Aaron Konsmist. Minsky, a 23-year-old Polish barber living in London, to the crimes according to science. Although identified as a Jack the Ripper suspect, police are said to have lacked sufficient evidence to charge Kaminsky for the murders. And this is what they said. We applied novel, minimally destructive techniques for sample recovery from forensically relevant stains on the evidence and separated single cells linked to the suspect, followed by phenotypic analysis say the scientists in the Journal of Forensic Sciences. The mtDNA, micro, the mitochondrial DNA, profiles of both the victim and the suspect match the corresponding reference samples for finding the link of the evidence to the crime scene. Mitochondria are often described as the powerhouse of the cell. Also, they can use the force. <laughs> Kaminsky had been identified by a witness to one of the Jack the Ripper killings, although the witness refused to testify against him, experts say. However, the latest research claims to back up the witnesses who pointed the finger at Kaminsky. Genomic DNA from single cells recovered from the evidence was amplified, and the phenotypic information acquired matched 
the only witnesses statement regarded as reliable, said Lawlin and Miller in the abstract. To our knowledge, this is the most advanced study to date regarding this case. Science reports that while Kaminsky has been leaked to the horrific crimes before, this is the first time that the DNA evidence has been published and in a peer-reviewed journal. More extensive information on the research will be released later this year. The full story that the paper and new revealing graphic evidence relating to the case will be published in September, explained Liverpool John Moore's University in a statement emailed to Fox News. This is where I got the article from. Uh, critics, however, have questioned key elements of the research, such as the effectiveness of the mitochondrial DNA analysis in identifying a suspect and the provenance of the shawl. Science reports that critics have questioned whether the shawl was at the Jack the Ripper crime scene and also voiced their concern that it has become contaminated with the DNA from other people over the course of the last 130 years. More than 100 years after the brutal killings, the Jack the Ripper continues to be a source of fascination. Last year, a chilling 19th century postcard written by someone claiming to be Jack the Ripper resurfaced in the UK, puzzling experts. Also in 2018, a forensic linguist shed new light on letters supposedly written by the murderer during the killing spree that sent shockwaves through Victorian London. In 2017, researchers claimed to have proved the authenticity of a controversial Victorian diary that was supposedly written by the infamous killer himself. In a separate project, another team of researchers looking to identify the last known victim of the Jack the Ripper revealed that they have hit a low-tech roadblock that will likely prevent them from unleashing their DNA testing technology on any potential remains. Experts from the UK's University of Leicester that identified the remains of King Richard III had embarked on the project to identify Mary Jane Kelly. However, finding Kelly's actual remains possess a massive challenge. The grave marker in St. Patrick's Catholic Cemetery in Leetonstone, I'm pretty sure I fucked that up, London, where Kelly is assumed to be buried, likely has little relevance to her actual grave. So that's the end of the Jack the Ripper tale. I wonder if we'll ever find out who it was. Uh, hopefully, they'll be able to identify, maybe. But, I mean, it's been so long. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine... I don't fucking know. I'm not a scientist. Here's the next article. <clears throat> they say better late than never. A New Jersey man pushed that to the limit when he returned a library book 53 years late. It was 1966 when the man who was 13 years old at the time checked out the family book of verse by Louis Gannett. Lyndon Johnson was president and Vietnam War protests were raging. Harry Crame, now 65, said while laughing that when he was asked his name while checking out the book, he said he couldn't give it because he was in the witness protection program. <laughs> Crame said he found the book recently while cleaning out his basement and started to feel kind of guilty. It lasted a few seconds, he said. It was like, holy shit, I still have it. He said he knew that he said he knew at that moment he had to take it back. So after more than half a century the former student returned the book to Memorial Middle School in Fairlawn, New Jersey. At 10 cents a day, that's about $2,000, the school reckons. But not to worry, we're not looking to collect on it, said Dominic Tarquino, the vice principal of Memorial Middle School, who was shocked when the mysterious student, now an adult, came in and said he had something to return. The copy of the family book verse was from 1961, when the cost of books was only $4.95. And that's the end of that little 
interesting little tale about a man who kept a book for 40, 53, 43, 53 years. Now moving on to the next article. The Australian man suffered only a small cut and the sudden need for a new phone. An Australian man's life has been saved by his mobile phone. Incredibly, his phone stopped an arrow from hitting him as he came under attack in rural New South Wales. The 43-year-old was left with a small cut on his chin following the bizarre incident, but pictures released by the police show it could have been much much worse. The incident began when the attacker carrying a bow and arrow confronted the man outside his house, um, New South Wales police said. The victim then raised his phone to photograph the potential attack, uh, I guess as you should, when his assailant fired the arrow. Instead of being a camera, the phone suddenly became an unlikely shield, helping to protect the victim from potentially serious injury. Police said the arrow pierced the victim's phone, knocking it knocking it back into his face. He suffered a small cut, but was otherwise unhurt. The two men were known to each other, said officers. The incident happened in the town of Nimbin, some 110 miles south of Brisbane earlier this week. The 39-year-old male who fired the arrow has been charged with assault, property damage offenses, and will appear in court next month. The town of Nimbin has a reputation for being the marijuana capital of Australia. Woo! It has been described as Naughty Nimbin by some locals. Ooh, I want to take a trip to Naughty Nimbin. <laughs> Moving on to this next article. This one's for the ladies. Um, so, uh, you know, be aware, but also I think this is kind of how uh, some of you would probably want to go out. A woman almost dies from a stroke triggered by oral sex. Noise. A British woman had to go to the hospital after an intense, impending orgasm triggered a stroke. Woo! According to a new report from the British Medical Journal, the unidentified 44-year-old woman suffered a transient loss of consciousness, or T-lock, while receiving oral sex from her partner. Dude, that dude must have a fucking giant-ass tongue. Uh, after the woman was unconscious for two to three minutes after the sex, her partner got nervous and took her to the emergency room at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London. Once there, the man told doctors his partner's body had gone stiff during their session. <laughs> the woman told doctors she had a headache that she described as a 6 out of 10 on the pain scale, according to the Sun Times. At first, doctors believed, based on the symptoms, that the woman had suffered a seizure. Doctors later learned she had experienced a blackout caused by a sudden lack of blood supply to the brain, also known as reflex-mediated syncope. On closer history taking, on closer history taking, the patient reported nearing orgasm while receiving oral sex from her partner before losing consciousness. The authors wrote in the report for the BMJ, a CT scan and a CT anograph <laughs> showed she had an aneurysm leading to a sub subacarneoid hemorrhage, a kind of stroke. The researchers said it's not unheard of for orgasms to cause stroke. Activities that involve sudden increase in blood pressure and sexual activity is well described as a percipient. They write in the case report. Studies with inertia are oh, I'm sorry, intra-arterial monitoring during coitus demonstrate that during sexual activity, blood pressure as well as heart rate is very liable with particular rises during orgasm. The report said doctors treated the woman with a procedure called 
ediovascular coiling, which uses a catheter to transmit a tiny coil to seal off the aneurysm from blood flow. She was released from the hospital 15 days later. Four months later, doctors said she has suffered no further problems. So like I said, if that's the way uh, some of you women want to go out, I imagine that's just, that's what it's going to do for you. Noise. So she she's probably should really be thankful for her partner. Or would she be mad? Because like, whoa, buddy, you almost gave me a fucking stroke. <clears throat> now this one's for the fellas, but it's not as pleasing as the it is for the for the ladies. Um, so unlicensed gun owner, and this is the last article that I have for you guys. So I'm ending it on a very bad one for you fellas, and I'm, I apologize. But an unlicensed gun owner accidentally shoots himself in the penis. The victim who remains in the hospital didn't have a license to carry a handgun in Indiana, police said. Mark Anthony Jones, 46, told police in Marion that he was taking a morning walk when the high point 9mm handgun he was carrying in his waistband began to slip. Jones told police that when he reached down to adjust the unholstered gun, it discharged, shooting a bullet that entered just above his penis and exited his scrotum. Mm. Oh, oh. The release notes that Jones doesn't have a license to carry a handgun in Indiana. Investigators have forwarded the case to Grant County prosecuting attorney who will determine if Jones will face any criminal charges for the self-inflicted wound. And um, I'll go ahead and read the police department report that was released. Um, on February 28, 2019 at 6.44 a.m., Accidental self-inflicted gunshot room. On February 28, 2019, at approximately 6.44 a.m., officers of the Marion Police Department responded to the emergency room department of Marion General Hospital for an accidental self-inflicted gunshot injury. Officers met with Mark Anthony Jones, age 46, in the emergency department. Jones reported that he was walking on the walkway near the Girl Scout cabin. Jones reported that the high-point 9mm handgun he was carrying in his waistband without a holster began to slip he reached down to adjust the gun, and the gun discharged. The bullet entered just above his penis and exited his scrotum. Jones doesn't have an Indiana handgun license. This case will be sent to the Grant Co. Prosecutor's Office for review. Submitted by Deputy Chief Stephen D. Dorsey. Wow. So unfortunately, that's all the time I have for you guys on This Week in Crime, but I hope you guys enjoyed it. And uh, be prepared for Monday's episode. Uh, so make sure you're following me at Strange Talk Podcast on Instagram so that we know what Monday's episode is going to be all about. And um, until then, until uh, Monday, why don't you feel free to go back and listen to past episodes like the Christine Chubbick and but Arbor Dwyer story or the recent episode that I did with the awesome, beautiful ladies at Kills and Chills um, that I did where they covered the weird, mysterious death of a four-year-old girl by the name of Paulette. Ivana Fiera, I think is how you say her name. But, I mean, of course the parents did it, because I know you guys didn't see the fucking uh, uh, crime scene photos, but if you just Google Paulette Ivana Fiera, and you see how her body's positioned, there is no way in hell that you are going to miss that fucking body. Maybe if the blankets were on it, but you're still going to move the blankets, because there's no way. She was just there, like that. And we all know how fucking corrupt the Mexican government is. They were kind of well off. They had money. They just didn't have a lot to pay for all the medical expenses for their daughter because she was very disabled. Um, so she needed a lot of medical attention, a lot of medical care. And uh, my guess is they just didn't want to deal with that anymore. And they just said, fuck it. She's gone. You know? 
Doggy Dog World, I guess, for them, and that's sad. And then I covered the infamous 1912 murder case of the Velisca Axe Murders, um, which has never been solved to this day. Well, at least the suspect has never been charged with the murders of the Moore family and the Stillinger girls that stayed the night at the Moore's residence. Uh, so go check those episodes out, and, um, you know, uh, if you have the time, why not feel free to uh, give me a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher. I believe Stitcher allows you to. And I know Spotify doesn't, I think. But if you can and you have the time, why not feel free to send a review. However you feel I deserve or whatever you feel I deserve, feel free to just do that. And, you know, keep being awesome. Go about your day and listen to all that I have to offer you. So thank you for joining me again on This Week in Crime. I hope you guys enjoyed it. See you next time. And as always, stay strange.